welcome. Good to see you all here today. Thanks for joining us today as we gather for worship. A few things to to remind you of. First, if you're uh, visiting with us today, we're glad that you are here. And there is a Connect card that is should be in the pew in front of you. And we'd love for you to fill that out and so we can know of your attendance with us. And uh, there's also a place on there, this goes for everybody, uh, for, for prayer requests. If there's something that uh, you have prayer, uh, a prayer need uh, this week that we could pray for you about, we'd love to do that. And again, you can just drop that in the, uh, the offering box in the foyer. And uh, we'll, we'll get it that way. Thank you for that. A couple announcements. Uh, next Sunday is uh, our Baptism Sunday. Uh, we'll be uh, recognizing and celebrating with two individuals who are going public with their faith. And uh, we'll rejoice in uh, their testimony uh, next week, as well as there are two individuals who've previously been baptized who want to join our church. So uh, next, next Sunday, we'll have the opportunity to welcome into our church membership four, four new individuals. And uh, please please be there for that. We'll start the service off with that right at 11 a.m. And we'd be glad for you to join us in that celebration. Also next Sunday, uh, Pastor Wigan and Leah will be with us uh, for worship on, on Sunday. They're going to be in the area uh, for some other things. And they're going to stop by uh, through here. So I'm sure he'll be glad to, to see all of you uh, as well uh, next Sunday. Uh, last, uh, last announcement that we have for today is at the end of the month, we still got a few weeks out for this, but we are having another church family game night. And uh, I know that some of us aren't uh, big game people. Some of you uh, might not like board games very much, or you're not very competitive, or maybe you're too competitive. Maybe that's the problem. Uh, and so here, here's my appeal to you. Uh, you don't actually have to play games. Uh, there's going to be food there too. And so, you know what, I'd, I just kind of went around from table to table, and I just, I just ate, and I played very few games. It was, it was a great night. So, if you just want to come eat, uh, we're good with that. Uh, if you don't want the games, but just want to hang out uh, with people, uh, we'd invite you to come. And uh, we are asking for you to bring uh, some, something shareable uh, to, to eat. And uh, we'll be right here in the foyer, uh, primarily. And it uh, should be a good time. That is October the 30th, so the end, end of the month there. And lastly, I guess we want to welcome back Tim Hill. Tim Hill made it back from Tennessee. He was gone last week on a CWE mission trip. And uh, I, I have not talked to you, but I'm assuming that, uh, well, A, you got back. And then B, uh, everything that you were supposed to get done, you got done. And there was some concern about weather uh, leading up there and that the Lord worked all that out as he does, right? Amen to that. So if you want to hear more about uh, what Tim was doing last, uh, last week, I'm sure he'd be glad to, to share that uh, with you. Well then, would you stand with me as we hear the call to worship from the book of Revelation? And in Revelation chapter 4, uh, the Apostle John is writing, and he is given a, a, a vision, right? That's what the book of Revelation is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's given a vision of the throne room. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures. And these four living creatures cried out day and night, what verse 8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
Then verse 9 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We're going to rehearse this morning this vision that John had of us together with the 24 elders around the throne, casting our crowns upon Jesus. Crown him with many crowns. First John chapter 2, beginning of verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they were all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Now, Father, would you prepare our hearts to accept your word? Would you silence in us any voice but your own? That hearing, we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, <clears throat> we will be looking at verses 18 through 27 this morning. In a sermon from 1886, just a few years ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, <clears throat> If you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, you must be right. We live in an age that we would call postmodern or postmodernity, in which the idea of absolute truth has been lost. There is no sense of absolute truth. 
no sense of what could be objectively understood to be right. We are made to to, uh, believe that we can have our truth and someone else can have a different and contradictory truth and both of us are somehow still correct. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous on any level. Logic need apply here, right? Uh, that, that, that would not work with your teacher in grade school. It does not work with God today. There is truth. There is truth that is knowable. Despite what cultures and societies may believe, there is actual truth, objective and absolute, and some things are true whether you believe them to be true or not. And so it is with the truth of God's word. The Apostle John wrote this first letter of John in order to call Christians to walk in the light, to walk in love, and now here in this passage, to walk in truth. We've been talking about John's tests of assurance, and he's already given two earlier in the chapter. One is the test, uh, the, the moral test of love excuse me, of obedience. Second was the social test of love. And third is a doctrinal test, the test of truth. Now, just by way of reminder, the background or the the context of 1 John, his, his writing to these Christians is because there was a group of people who dissected or dissented from the church. They, they separated themselves. They, they removed themselves, I should say, seceded from the church, um, and not, not in order to go to another church, as if that were even a thing in the early church, by the way. You know people didn't do that, right? You know people didn't leave the church over music in the early church. They didn't, they didn't think the preacher down the road had, had better outfit on, so he, it, was, it was a cooler church, or they served coffee. Like, that wasn't a thing, in the early church, right? You know that. So that's certainly not what he's talking about. He's not, we're not referring to people leaving the church because uh, of any preference. They were leaving the church not in order to go to another fellowship, but to leave the fellowship of the believers altogether. When we're talking about leaving the church, we mean literally leaving the people of God. Not only just that, but leaving in order then to teach things that were contradictory to God, right? They, were, they became false teachers who taught untruths about Christ and Christianity. So John begins this section by identifying the existence of false teachers. And just elephant in the room, if it looks like I have allergies and sinus problems, it's because I have allergies and sinus problems. <clears throat> so uh, I will be wiping my nose, so don't worry, I'm not gonna get anything on you. I, I won't shake your hand later, you're okay. We're all okay. Everyone's okay. Okay. <clears throat> Let's just get that out of the way. All right. Back to, uh, back to the sermon at hand. So, so John is beginning this section by identifying the existence of false teachers. Look at verse 18 with me. <clears throat> Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, there's two things that John introduces here that are maybe notable for us as we're reading through the first, first John. And the, the two ideas, the first one is the last hour. 
or the last days or the last times. Now, we could understand this basically and very fundamentally as referring to the time before the second coming of Jesus, before Jesus returns, is the last, the last times. But, but in a very real sense, what we can't understand is that since the resurrection of Jesus, we have been in the last days. We have been in the last hours. Now, some of us think about the, la- the, the, the end times, or the last days, as this you know, apocalyptic end, end of the world. Not that it doesn't include that, but when John says we're in the last hour, he's referring to this, this period um, uh, between the comings of Jesus. The last hour, that is the time before Jesus' return. I think it's fair to say that we can see it here with John, and we see it with several other writers and throughout church history, that every generation of believers has thought that Jesus was coming in their lifetime, right? Uh, we think that. You know that the generation before you thought that. Why do, we, why do we know that? Because the apostles thought that. Like, everybody thinks Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. And, and, and there's reason for that, because th- these are the last the last days, the last hour uh, of when he can return, meaning he can return whenever. So it's right for us to, to think that it could be today. It could be within our lifetime. What John understood, even some just 50 years at this point, uh, before, since Jesus had, had risen, is that, that he is in the last hour. He came to understood this because the last, because the last hour uh, meant that the, there, was, there would be antichrists, right? That's what he says. You've heard that antichrist is coming. So you know that this antichrist is coming. And so now many antichrists have come. So this introduces the, the second idea, this word antichrist, which he uses in two different ways. He uses one singularly, and then he uses it in the plural. So, so he's, he's saying two different things. John uh, interestingly, is the only writer to use this term. He, no one else uses Antichrist in their writings, although the Bible is, is full of this uh, idea of the man of lawlessness Paul writes about, or, or this, this one who is going, going to come yet. Yeah, Daniel 7, Mark 13, and as I said in 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness. But this, this word Antichrist, we got the, the prefix is anti, which I think most of us uh, can, can gather, is, is against or it could be instead of, this is a false Christ. Um, so we could understand the word, one writer says, in three different ways. This word could mean a spirit in the world that opposes Christ. So you could use the word in that sense. You could word, use the word in, in the sense of false teachers or false prophets who embody this spirit. And that is what John is using when he says antichrists in, in the plural. Or finally, a person who will head up the final rebellion against Christ that we would see in the book of Revelation. And that is what John means when he says, you know that Antichrist, singular, is coming. So John's point, uh, he was pointing out the presence of false teachers at his time. Right? He was pointing out that, that their presence was a precursor to the Antichrist. And therefore, these false teachers were a sign of the last hour. That's what John is saying. He's saying, children, it's the last hour. You you know the Antichrist is coming? Well, look, right now, there's Antichrists here. They're a precursor to the Antichrist. This is the end time. Antichrist or false Christ or false teachers, whereas one uh, commentator says, substitute Christs who 
dilute and destroy the church from within. This is who John is writing about. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This was, this was the danger. This was the, the false teachers, or these were the false teachers that John is writing about. John understood that false teachers were doing just that, leading many astray. And the confirmation of their condition as false teachers was, in John's words, their departure from the church, from us. What does he say? Look at verse 19 with me. They went out from us. The us is, is the, the church, Christians, the body of Christ. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. They would have continued with us, excuse me. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We find here in 1 John 2, one of the distinguishing marks of a false teacher is that they depart from the fellowship of the saints. They depart from the church. And he's drawing this distinction in this contrast we're going to see again between kind of us and them, being Christians and false teachers. We can know that many who mislead others once were part of the church. Take, for instance, Joseph Smith. Maybe you know Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was, has, was said, said that he was visited by an angel from heaven and it was given then gold tablets of new scripture, which came to be called the Book of Mormon. Before any of that, Joseph Smith was part of a church, but he came to believe that the church was corrupt and that God wanted him to start a new church which became the cult of Mormonism. You may say, well, that doesn't sound very nice to call it a cult. I don't use the word cult necessarily derogatorily. I mean it as a definition of what it is. A cult is anyone who teaches something antithetical to Jesus, a, 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 a non-orthodox view, a heretical view of Jesus, which, for instance, the, the Mormon church does just that. They do not agree and they teach a very sketchy view of the nature of the conception of Jesus. They're not clear, as the Bible is clear, about the degree of Jesus' deity, nor his application of his death. The point today is not about the church of the Mormon church, quote unquote, but it is to say that there are false teachers. And one of the evidences of a false teacher is that he depart from the fellowship and from orthodoxy. And that's an example of it. A person, a person can partner with a local church for a period of time and not be part of the body of Christ. You know that. We do our best, as best as we can as humans, to uh, try to discern if someone actually knows Jesus before they join our church. Uh, they, they, they go through a, a class. They, they have to write out their testimony. They have to share their testimony. There are a few ways in which we're trying to discern if someone knows Jesus. But someone can lie very easily to us and say all the right things and yet have no affiliation with Jesus, no relationship with him. And eventually they will depart. Counterfeits do not remain in the fellowship with, with the body of Christ. They do not do it. 
Here John describes the deviation of false teachers from the fellowship, right? And here, what we want to make sure we, we, we are clear about, their departure was not a loss of salvation. They didn't lose their salvation and, and leave the church. Rather, it was an indication of never having been genuinely saved. Why would we come to that conclusion? Look again at verse 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. They didn't become not of us. They were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all were not of us. The evidence of faith, the evidence of being saved, the evidence of being a Christian is perseverance in the faith. The evidence is that you'll continue to believe. The evidence is that you won't fall away. That's the evidence. Those whom God has saved, they will endure to the end. That is clear in the scriptures. And those who quote unquote fall away or depart from the faith only signal their inauthenticity that they are not authentic in their profession. That's the signal. The signal isn't that they lose their salvation. The signal is they never had their salvation. And why? Because your salvation is not primarily based on you. Your salvation is based upon the God who saves you. And the God who saves you keeps you. And the God who gives you the faith to believe gives you the faith to keep on believing. And so it is these People, these false teachers, left the church only to become false teachers, leading others astray. Well, after identifying the presence of these false teachers, John then cites essential characteristics of the children of God. And so we're going to see this contrast here. Look at verse 20 and 21. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So again, John, John's drawing a contrast between those who went out from them and those who are still there, who are the children of God. He says, but you, who's the you? Back in verse 18, the children, the children of who? The children of God, right? That's who he's talking to, these children, whom we already looked at. Look at verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven in, for his name's sake. And then jump down to the end of verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. These are who he's writing to. People who've, who know their sins are forgiven and know God as Father. Those are Christians. He's writing to Christians. He's drawing a distinction here. And I just want to pause for a moment and just say, do you know that your sins are forgiven this morning? Do you know God as Father this morning? There might be some of you today who can't answer yes to that. And the invitation for you this morning is that, that you can, that you can say yes to both of those questions if you will come to God through his son, Jesus. That is how we are forgiven of our sins, and that's how we are brought into saving, a saving relationship with him, to know him as our father. We are saved by believing on Christ, and we are called the sons of God by faith in Jesus. 
Here in verse 20 and 21, we see two essential characteristics of God's children. The first being anointed by the Holy One. Anointed by the Holy One in verse 20. You have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, um, one theologian writes it this way, that the word anointing is, is John's metaphor here from the Old Testament of when kings and prophets were anointed for their ministries. They were anointed by pouring olive oil on their head and thus setting them apart for service, for special service. That was the, the imagery of the Old Testament that John now is applying here in the New Testament to say that, that we have been anointed by the Holy One. How have we been anointed by the Holy One? Well, John's use of this word anointed is only found here uh, in 1 John, and it speaks of the Holy Spirit. How has the Holy One, how has Jesus, how has God the Father anointed us he has anointed us. He's given to us what? The Holy Spirit. Jesus promised this in the Gospels. He said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave you. It is good that I leave because when I leave, I'm going to send another, a comforter, a helper who will come to you. And later in the, the, the New Testament, we find out that this one doesn't just come, but, but he comes to indwell us. This is the anointing of the Holy One, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So in contrast to the antichrists who were against, anti, against Christ, and Christ, that word Christ has uh, the, the Messiah, anointed one, all of that goes together. They were against the anointed one. Whereas Christians are dwelt or anointed by the spirit of Christ who is the anointed one. See the play on words that John is using there. So first, essential a characteristic of a children of God is they are anointed by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, that they have knowledge. The rest of verse 20 says, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Uh, this is the knowledge, he writes, speaks of, the knowledge of the truth centered on Jesus. Again, this is all about Jesus. We're going to find out in a little bit, the next few verses, the, the, the main subject of, of the false teachers. But this is all about Jesus. And so he's saying to them, you have the spirits and you have knowledge. You, you, you know who Jesus is. You know who God is. You know what the word of God says about these things. Jesus has told us that uh, the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. This is the outcome of the presence of the Spirit in our life, is that we will know the truth. That doesn't mean we're super smart. It doesn't mean we're smarter than everybody else. It means that God has given to us a Spirit enable for, to, to enable our understanding, enable to us, for us to see, understand the Scriptures, and believe what it says. Again, in contrast here, in contrast to these false teachers. We talked early on about Gnosticism. And one of the things about Gnosticism is they believed that you had to have a, a special knowledge in order to be saved. And so John is pointing out this idea and he's saying, you want knowledge? You want knowledge? Christians have all knowledge. They have it through the Spirit. It's through the Spirit that, that we know the truth about God, about Jesus, and about the Word. How can we know that knowledge? By possession of the Spirit. Now, this morning, when, when I talk about false teachers, some of you might be like, 
really? Like, I'm not sure what this has to do with me. Like, false teachers seems like something that happened way back then and maybe like future. Uh, they, they don't sound like things that are happening today. And you might be prone to think uh, when you hear the, that there are antichrists that, that John calls them or false teachers, uh, that they are not present. And I, and I want to um, urge you, I want to dissuade you of such an idea. Uh, false teachers are as prevalent today as they have always been present in the world and within the church. If an antichrist is a false teacher who opposes Christ, then clearly we have antichrists today. We have people, even as we sit here this morning, standing in pulpits around the world who are teaching untruths about Jesus. They're teaching things that are untrue about who God is about the way of salvation, about the very word of God itself. So we who have the Spirit, we who have the Spirit, who have knowledge of this truth, then must pay attention. We must be on guard. You must listen when someone is preaching. When I'm preaching, you should be listening. You should be discerning whether or not what I'm saying is right. When, when, when I preach, you'll hear me say, look at verse 18. And some of you don't look at verse 18. I want you to look at verse 18 because what I want to tell you is that that's what verse 18 says. I'm not making up verse 18. Look at it. We're pointing out what the Bible says, not what I say, what the Bible says. Now you can decide whether or not you, you, you agree with the outcomes of those things, but that's where we're going off of. You should be listening. You should be paying attention. You should be thinking. You should be looking at your Bible saying, is that right? Does that go along with what I know to be true of the rest of the Bible? You should be doing that. You should be doing that. And here, John is saying that there are those who are preaching certain things that you need to be paying attention and you've been given the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which means that you're able to understand because you have knowledge. Well, from here, John then describes what the false teaching is. So there's false teachers. What are the false teachers teaching? What's this heresy that they're teaching? Look at it in verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So he ends verse 21 by saying, because no lie is of the truth. And then he picks up verse 22 by saying, who's the liar? And who is the liar? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. When he says Christ, he's, he's using the word Christ. That's the Greek, and it means Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. The denial here is not that Jesus existed. It's the denial of his divinity. It's the denial that he was actually God, that he was actually the son of God. And listen, this is no incidental point. This is no small matter. This is, this is not a secondary issue. The deity of Jesus is non-essential, excuse me, is not negotiable for the Christian. It is essential. It is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is fundamental to salvation. If Jesus is not God, if Jesus is not God, that he is not who he said he was, 
He is not who the Bible says he was. And therefore he could not do and did not do what he said he did, namely atone for the sin of the world and thereby providing forgiveness of sins and life eternal. It's kind of a big deal. We got to get it right. Being sincere is not enough. We must be right. Jesus is in fact though the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Consequently, you cannot deny Jesus and have the Father. Look at verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. A few months ago, our children had a conversation with a, a stranger. Uh, it was a spiritual conversation and, and evangelistic conversation. And they reported that conversation to me, and, and as they shared it, they said to this, this individual, uh, they talked to them, and they said they, they believed in God, they knew about the Bible, they were spiritually good, there's certainly more to the conversation. But as they relayed that conversation, I was, I was listening, and I said to them, what's missing in that response? That sounds a lot, a lot of Christian language, maybe even some Bible words there, but what's missing in that and what was missing is Jesus. There was no Jesus. You cannot have the Father and deny the Son. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You see, much of society may still be the theistic to some degree, meaning they believe in a God. But a denial of Jesus is a denial of God. It is a denial of the Father. You cannot have one without the other. They say, well, why is that? Because they are together. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Because there is one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are eternally united. They are triune. The triunity of the Godhead. You cannot separate. To reject one is to reject all three. This is why Jesus is so disruptive, isn't he? We can get along in the world by just saying, I believe in God. You're not going to offend anybody with that. You can get along by saying, I believe in the sun God. You can get, get along by saying, you, you have a, a bronze you know, elephant in your house that you worship. Nobody cares. You can go into public square. You can go into school systems and workplaces and say that you are any religion. No one really cares until you bring up Jesus. And some of us might feel like that, that's like an attack on, on Christianity. It, it, maybe it is. But the reason that it's an attack on Christianity is because Jesus makes the difference. The bronze elephant doesn't make any difference. The dead God that they pray to doesn't make any difference. The sun God doesn't make any difference. Jesus makes a difference. Because when you know the claims of Jesus... You can't dismiss it. Now you're under it. When Jesus says, I'm the only way to the Father. The only way to the Father. He doesn't say it one way. He's not saying, maybe you can come another way. Or that religion's okay, and that religion's okay, and this one's okay. We live in a pluralistic society. I get it. Where they look at Christianity and Judaism and, and Islam and say, well, well, they're all monotheistic. They all believe in, in one God. Yeah, but they don't believe in the same Jesus. 
and they don't believe in the same God. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. You cannot have the Father without the Son. You must have Jesus. And John is clear, to deny Jesus is to deny the Father. Jesus is the dividing line. He makes the difference. When you're in conversation with someone and they say believe in God, amen. I'm glad they believe in God. That's a good place to start. Well, you know what? God had a son. And without that son, there is no salvation. A denial of Jesus is the chief heresy of the false teachers. That's what John's dealing with. That these people went out from the church, withdrew from the church, and were teaching untruths about Jesus, denying, as we see here, his deity. And John is calling these Christians away from it. He concludes this section by helping the readers to be on guard against such heresy. Verses 24 through 27, we see this call to faithful living. John Montgomery Boyce identifies here what he calls two weapons that Christians have to guard ourselves from this heresy. And the first we find in verses 24 and 25, follow along, let let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. So we need to know what you have heard from the beginning. What is it that we have heard from the beginning? The gospel, the word of God. John is saying, let, let the, the word of God, let the gospel of God abide in you. And if the gospel of God abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. Here's the, the test of, of, of the doctrinal test of truth. Is it the truth of, of the gospel that you are abiding in? You're, you're holding on to, you're, you're remaining in. And if you are, then what that means is that you will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he has made eternal life. There is power in the word. Amen? And there is power of the word in us, abiding in us. In fact, this is the first weapon that John gives against false teaching is the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul refers to it as the sword of the spirit, the only offensive piece of armor given in, Act, in Ephesians chapter 6. We are to combat false teaching with the truth of the word of God. Let me read to you 2 Timothy chapter, four, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. You'll probably uh, recognize these verses. Jo uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. It's the word of God which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. That means it's inspired. It's God's words. It is profitable. It has value for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 
And there is so much there for us to consider. But here we can know this, that the word of God shows us what is right. That's teaching. It shows us what is not right. That's reproof. It shows us how to get right. That's correction. And it shows us how to stay right. That's training in righteousness. The word of God is our weapon against the heresies that come at us, the false teachings, namely, of Jesus, according to John. One commentator writes this, John's point was that if readers would resist the lies of the Antichrists and let the truth that they heard from the beginning abide or be at home in them, they would continue to abide in the fellowship of God and the Father and God the Son. So as we abide in the word, we abide in the Son and the Father. And those who abide in the Son and the Father are promised what? Eternal life. Turn just a page or two over to 1 John chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, it's just one page over. It's actually just right across the page, excuse me. Looking at chapter 5, listen to verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You must have the son. The second weapon we see in verses 26 and 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There are those who are trying to deceive you, right? These are the false teachers. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we're seeing this word anoint again. And again, he is referring to the Holy Spirit. So since believers are indwelt by, they're taught by, they're led by the Spirit, they have no need for any false teacher or any antichrist to teach them anything. Now, John is teaching them, right? So they are being taught. He's referring to the teaching of the false teachers. They have no need to teach you anything. These who have left, these who have seceded from the, the, the church, these who are promoting false teachings, he said, they don't, they don't teach you anything. You don't need to listen to them at all. Because he continues, but... Uh, this is the middle of verse 17. But his anointing teaches you about everything. The anointing, the spirit teaches you about everything. The presence of the spirit of truth is our weapon against false teaching. A Christian, you have both. You have the word of God and you have the spirit of God. Twice in this passage, um, verses 24 through 27, we see this phrase, abide in you. That the word of God abides in you and the anointing abides in you. To abide means to, to remain or to stay or, or to let it control you. So when we think about the word, abiding in the word, Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it control you. Remain in the word. When we think about the spirit, as we abide in the spirit, we walk in the spirit. We keep in step with the spirit. We live according to the spirit. You can look at Galatians chapter five and Romans chapter eight for that. James Montgomery Boyce says this, without the spirit, the word becomes bitter orthodoxy. 
without the word, the experience of the spirit can lead to the most unjustifiable and damaging of excesses. We need both. You need both. And, in, and through Christ, we have both. The word of Christ is the very word of God, written and preserved for us. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus, who is the spirit of Christ, living in all who have come to repentance and faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. We praise God for that. We have all we need to faithfully follow God in truth. You have all you need. When the false teacher teaches, when you hear the untruths, because of the Spirit and because of the Word, you can know what is true. You don't have to be misled. And though we live in a very different time than the Apostle John lived, the fundamental problems still exist. The dangers of false teaching and false teachers are as real as ever. Please, please, please don't think that everybody who stands behind a pulpit with a Bible is a Christian. Please, please, please do not turn on the, the Christian station on your TV and think all of them are actually orthodox. They are not. They are not. Be a thinking person. The need for truth in faithful living cannot be underestimated. We can look at the world. We can look at the false Christs around these false teachers. And we may be reduced to worry and anxiety. How can I ever know? What, 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 what's going to happen? How can we know what the truth is? And yet God in grace has given to you his son, his spirit, his word. You have all you need. His spirit to teach us and to guide us into truth, to bring us safely home. And as we abide in him, as we draw near to him, James tells us that by grace, he will draw near to us and he will hold us fast. Stay close to the word, keep in step with the spirit and may God find us faithful this week. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your son Thank you for the reality, the truth, that he is in fact the Son of God. And because he is the Son of God, he did what only the Son of God could do, and that is to atone for the sin of the world. And as he has atoned for the sin of the world, through faith in him, we now can know him as our, our Savior and know you as our Father. And in knowing those things, God, we know because of the spirit that lives inside us. So we rejoice in the work of God today. For those with us this morning who may not know Jesus, maybe they've denied Jesus. Maybe they think Jesus is made up. Maybe they, they think that he's, uh, he's not true. May you give them eyes to see today this one who demonstrated your love by dying on the cross for the sin of the world in order that we might be saved. And upon seeing such love, such amazing grace offered that they would respond by acknowledging their sin, repenting, turning from their sin by grace and believing by faith in this Jesus to be their savior. Oh God, we thank you for your gift of your son and leaving your spirit until your work on earth is done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh God.